0: There was a rich man. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's tables. Even the dogs would come and lick at his sores. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. 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 The rich man was running out of room in his garage for all his stuff. His wife thought it was extravagant enough for them to have five cars for the two of them, but now the jet skis and the boats were making things untenable. And though he was supposed to be figuring out how to grease the palms of the local government so that he could get a yet another building permit, to yet build another garage on the back of his house, his mind was consumed by a far more stressful manner. Larry. Larry. You see, Larry stood outside the rich man's house every single day. Larry walked back and forth over the rich man's grass, the grass he had paid a small fortune to keep maintained. Larry had his little cardboard sign, asking for money, asking for some food. And people would slow down and pass him a few dollars out their window. They'd pass him a muffin from the back seat. And every day, Larry would return from sunup till sundown, walking and asking for help. And it was driving the rich man crazy. You know, he had done everything he could think of. He called the police. But they explained that the property upon which Larry was walking actually didn't belong to the rich man. It belonged to the city. There was nothing they could do about it. So the rich man proposed a new city ordinance banning panhandlers like Larry from asking for money. But all the churches in town, they rallied against the new ordinance. The rich man even tried playing extremely loud and annoying music from his $10,000 sound system to annoy Larry enough to try to find a new place to ask for money, and none of it worked. Day after day, Larry showed up, and it drove the rich man mad. And yet one day, miracle of miracles, the rich man woke up. He looked out his window to... See if he saw the permanent fixture in his vision. But Larry was gone. He had disappeared. The man danced around his kitchen, sliding in his cashmere robe. He rejoiced. His problems seemed to be fixed. He drank from his imported coffee and was thrilled. Later that morning to discover, as he looked in the newspaper, he went to the obituary section, and there was Larry's picture. Larry was dead. Hallelujah! The man ran from his kitchen down the hallway to his indoor movie theater to share the good news with his wife. Larry was gone, but as he rounded the corner into the movie theater, he felt a pain in his chest and he dropped to the ground <laughs> dead. A little while later, the rich man realized that he was in hell. The fire was burning all around him. And he was in pain, so much pain that even he had to admit to himself that this was worse agony than having to watch Larry walk across the grass every day. And then, strangely enough, he looked beyond the lapping flames and he saw, much to his own disappointment, Larry on the other side. And next to Larry was an angelic figure. So the rich man shouted, hey, could you tell Larry to make me a Campari on the rocks? It's getting hot in here. <laughs> And the figure looked at him and said, no, you had good things your whole life, rich man. But Larry, Larry had nothing here. He is being comforted and you, you will live in agony. And notice you can't come to our side and we can't come to yours So the rich man, he fell to his knees and shouted, please, please send Larry to my brothers that he might warn them to change their lives so they don't have to suffer in this place like me. And the figure said, no, your brothers have the scriptures. They need only trust what they read. And the rich man said, no, you don't get it. That's not enough for me or for my brothers. They need to see someone who returns to them from the dead. Otherwise, they'll never believe. And the figure finally said, look, If they don't already trust what was done for them, then they will never be convinced, even if someone does rise from the dead. The end. This is one of the many stories in the Gospels. When I pull out my Bible and I read it and I go from beginning to end, I think to myself, hey Jesus, thanks for this one. You know? The wealthy and powerful in this life they're going to burn forever and ever in hell. And those who are weak, those who are poor, they might suffer now, but they will be rewarded in the beyond. So friends, do what you can. Give away your wealth. Live like Larry. Live like Lazarus so that your reward will really be a reward. You don't want to wind up like the rich man, do you? The scripture It's really easy for it to become a lambasting sermon about the poverty of wealth and the riches of near destitution. Plenty of pastors like me have stood in pulpits and preached their sermons about how you all need to be better. Hold this story over people and say, you need to put more money in the offering plate or to guilt people like you into signing up for different ministries or embarrassing the wealthy in our midst about what's going to happen to them when they die. And frankly... There's some truth to that. It is challenging to read the whole of the gospel and to not read it as an indictment against the wealthy. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Sounds real fun, doesn't it? But as usual, there's more to the parable than just the story itself. In our life, living well Accumulating lots of possessions, having those deep and padded bank accounts, that might be our most overpowering ideal lifestyle. But in the kingdom of God, they don't matter at all. We wrongly have used those categories to describe the saved. If you're wealthy, if you're successful, if you're powerful, then you're saved. If you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weak, then you're lost. Winning equates to wealth, and losing equates to poverty. And yet in Jesus' eyes, strangely enough, it's living badly. It's being poor, and hungry, and having sores over your body that turns out to be what saves us. And I think we can hardly blame ourselves for missing this divine reversal. We have had it repeated into our little brains every day of our lives from the time we're babies and even till today, that who we are is based on what we have earned. You don't need to really flip on the TV and go through the channels to be reminded about how wealth is the ideal. You don't have to see any of the billboards that say $100 billion lottery offering to know that we are so convinced and persuaded and captive to money. We elevate the powerful and the wealthy both both purposefully and subconsciously. We like to elect politicians that have done well for themselves. We read the self-help books from self-made millionaires. We look up to the wealthiest members in our community and in our families. And here's the kicker. The real driving wedge of this parable is that for all of our fascination, for the ways we worship those with money, they haven't really done much with it. I mean, think about it. If the world could have been fixed by what we might call good living or good earning, then we would have fixed everything by now. But the world is a mess. It's an absolute mess. It's the winners of this world who more often than not achieve their winnings off the backs of the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. Even here in the U.S., we like to forget that all the good that we have, being the greatest nation in the world, it only came on the backs and on the blood of black and indigenous people. The wealthy and powerful get that way because they abuse the weak and the little. Those people are the ones thrown to the curb while all the new homes are going up, with the new families and the new cars and filling the neighborhoods. It's the last, the least, the lost, and the little who are thrown to the curb. Because we don't want to be last. We don't want to be lost. We don't want to be little. We don't want to be dead. We want to be like the rich. And we so want to be like the powerful and the wealthy and the rich that we blind ourselves from seeing how they get what they get and keep what they have through the poor. It has been the ignorance of the poor, the locking up of the marginalized, the segregation by skin tone that has brought about a very particular world in which the ones with power get to keep having their power. And even still... With all of their earning and all of their trying and all of their striving and all of their politicking and all of their maneuvering, this world of ours is a complete travesty and mess. The only thing that happens is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And here's where the parable stings the most. The rich man, the one who has all that he needs being first and found and most and big and alive, he is not able to delay or to change his death any more than Larry is with his lastness, leastness, lostness, littleness, and deadness. One of the truths of Christianity that we're so afraid to admit is that no one makes it out of this life alive. It doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are, everyone dies. The bell tolls for us all. So do you see it? When it comes to the good news, success defined by the world merits us not one little thing. The rich man might start out and seem like he's a real winner, but he can't even see the truth of his death. He refuses to accept that he has died. Hey, Lord, could you send him over here with a, a few drops of water to cool my tongue? It's getting awfully hot down here. He doesn't even want to admit that he is lost. That he has died. It is because he was so convinced that good living, having all the right things, having the deep bank account was the instrument of salvation. That being dead is unacceptable. I've been at the bedsides of plenty of people who were wealthy in the moment of their impending death. And the one thing I hear the most is, I never thought it would happen to me. Never thought it would happen to me. To make things worse, Father Abraham frightens all of us to death, intended, with this last declaration. Not even seeing a dead person rise from the grave will change our minds. We are so stuck in this worldly worldview of ours. We're so captivated and controlled by the ideal of wealth and power that we can't even see how drunk we are with it. Lest we hear the story today, hear my sermon, and we leave with the impression that we're supposed to go out and be like Larry, that we're supposed to go out and be like Lazarus, we're supposed to hang around at the gates of the wealthy until we develop sores, that's not what Jesus is saying. This is not a parable of imitation. It doesn't end with, go and do likewise. It's just the truth. It's just a story about the truth. And here is the truth. The game is over. The game is over. No one, certainly not God, is keeping score, tallying up all of our good works against our bad. There is not a divine ledger out there that tallies every misstep we have or whether we bring about something good in the world. And there is definitely not a test by which the accumulation of our wealth determines whether we go to heaven or not or what kind of mansion we get to have in heaven. That's not the way it works. The truth is a much harder pill to swallow precisely because everything else in the world tells us something different. Do all you can. Earn all you can. Achieve all you can. Save all you can. Invest all you can. Those are the slogans of the world. But the truth is that through Jesus, the game is over. We have nothing left to earn, really, because the cross comes and all of us die we can accept that we are already dead right here right now that we have been made dead with Christ in our baptisms then we can actually start living now because we can see that we already have all that we need Jesus came to raise the dead nothing more nothing less nothing else he did not come to reward the rewardable or improve the improvable or convert the convertible Jesus came to raise the dead that's it so heaven, whatever it may be, is not the home of the good, of the virtuous, of the wealthy, of the powerful. Heaven is simply the home of forgiven forgivers. Hell, whatever it may be, contains only unpardoned unpardoners. You know, everyone in heaven has decided to die to the question of who's wrong, whereas nobody can, in hell can even shut up about who's right. Right? And that's precisely the rich man's problem. He has been so conditioned, so convinced that his earning should have earned him something that he can't stop thinking about how he did everything right. But life isn't about what you do that's right. Life is about what God has done for us. Notice, Jesus does not begin the story with a disclaimer that this is exactly what will happen to every rich person or that this is exactly what will happen to every poor person, nor does he command the listeners to go and live like Lazarus until the day they die. He just tells a story. And it's a scary one. In the end, the story has one thing to say to people like you and me. The game is over. Whatever we think we need to do to get God to love us, to get God to forgive us, to get God to save us, it's already done. All of our sins in the past, in the present, and the future are nailed to the cross. The question isn't, what do we need to do to get saved? The question is, how are we going to start living knowing that we are already saved? The question isn't, where am I going to go when I die? The question is, what am I going to do for the people who are already living in hell on earth right now? So I offer this to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. In the early days of the church, there was a theological argument. And the theological argument was, how much bread should we give people in communion? Have you all ever heard about this before? Fights broke out among the church fathers. Some said you have to give this amount of bread. Some said you have to give this amount of bread. I had, uh, there was a church I used to help years ago, and one of the things I would do is help serve communion. And the pastor would always stand down by the front and I would be the one to hold the chalice next to him. And he would take a loaf of Hawaiian bread and someone would come up and he would say, the body of Christ for you. The body of Christ for you. He'd have 12 other loaves of bread behind him because he knew he was going to run out. And people would come up and they'd hold this giant loaf of bread in their hands and they'd look at me like, what am I supposed to do with this thing? because if you dip one of these inside of this cup, you're going to take all the Welsh's grape juice out with you. <laughs> and so people would take their giant loaf and they'd pull off their own little piece, they'd dip it, they'd eat it, and then they'd have lunch. <laughs> they did it every time we had communion. There was an argument in the early church about how much bread was enough. How much is too much? How much is too little? And you know what they said? This is all we need. Why? Because this is like the crumbs that fall off the end of the table. This is what Larry was waiting for. This is what Lazarus was waiting for. Because in this little crumb of bread is more wealth than the world could ever imagine. This is enough for you and me. The world tells us we need this. Christ tells us that this is enough. So would you please pray with me? Almighty God, you are better than we deserve. You are far better than we deserve because you have looked upon our miserable estate. You have seen how we have failed, how we have sinned, how we have hurt. And you say, I'm going to stick with you even if you don't stick with me. Lord, you are the God who breaks down the wall between the rich man and Lazarus and says, hey, come to my table where neither of you will ever be hungry again. Come to my table where you will really get what you need. So Lord, we give you thanks for this meal, for this church, for the person to our left and to our right, for all that you have given that we don't deserve because it is more than enough. Amen. Whether we like to admit it or not, all of us are like Larry in our own way. We're all like Lazarus. We are all poor in one way or another. And it's when we come to church that we feast on the riches that God gives to us, whether it's through bread or through song or through cup, but sometimes most especially through other people. So for a moment, let's stand and share the wealth of our own lives with those who are in church with the sharing of Christ's peace.